Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth, satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Because the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And his righteousness unto children's children. To such as keep his commandment, sorry, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So when we talk about God orchestrating things in the universe so that we would recognize his goodness and ascribe him worth, that's what we do when we worship something. We ascribe worth to it. There's right ways to worship in a lowercase w other things. The Bible um, says to that in uh, Proverbs, this is how a man loves his wife. He worships her. He speaks of her worth. And that's ascribing worth. It's not the same way we worship God, but it's the right way to recognize that there are things that I believe are worthwhile, and I'll say it. That's what we do when we worship God. And in the ways we worship God, and the things that we're worshiping about God, only God should be worshiped. We, we, we learn in the Psalms that we can look around at the world he's created and we're going to find all kinds of reasons and things for which we should ascribe worth to God. We learn from nature. Just naturally. You stand on top of the mountain and watch the sunset on the horizon and you go, wow, it's beautiful. 
you're saying what God said in creation. He made things, he looked at it, and he said, that's good. And there's a response that God built into creation to recognize God's goodness when we view it. That's important to remember, though, when we think about God building the whole world to ascribe worth to himself. That God is without sin. God's not attention slur. He's not using his power to sinfully feed a vacuous ego. In fact, God doesn't need praise. Because God doesn't need God is complete and satisfied within himself. God wasn't lonely. It's not why he created. He had fellowship in the Trinity. And so God is, and the response is worship. The fact of God creates the response of worship. Psalm 135 says, He's good. God is good. Therefore, praise Him. And John, in 1 John 4, it says, God is love. And so we praise Him. In different ways, we recognize there's different ways to do that. There's different words for worship in the Bible. One of them is like, and once you lay down on your face and you go, oh God, and you bow down in front of him. Oh God, you're, you're so good, you're so worthy. I'm humbling myself before God when I, if I were to bow down on the floor when I pray, it's a posture of humility. Human, humus, earth, dirt. Same word. When a human goes into a state of humility, they go down to the humus, down to the soil, back from whence we came. Death is the ultimate humbling. It puts us back into the dirt from which we came. In 1 John 1, we're told God is light. And then there's a certain kind of response. Paul will talk about this. The apostles all talk about this, that one of the responses that God should give for his, his being, all the things that God is, one of the responses we should have from us as worship, this is a different word for worship, but is service in the body. Liturgia. We get our word liturgy from it. And it's a word translated in the Greek as worship. And it means service. So when the priests had to scrub the pots down, when they had to like scrub out, carry out the ash, and clean out the ash pan, and shovel that out, and then somebody had to take it out to the ash pile and dump it. That was worship. Yeah. It's worship. Yeah. Paul talks this way in Romans about sexual purity in our bodies. Sexual purity is a kind of sign in your body that you're actually worshiping God with your body. All kinds of things, from gluttony to gossip, to being in prayers, to being in the Word, our habits, our rhythms, the things we do with our hands, if you used to steal, Paul says, stop stealing with your hands and work a couple extra hours so that you can have more money to give to people in need. Generosity is what is pure and good. Stealing is what sin does. It effaces generosity. It wrecks it. God is, and the result is worship. But then we would have to say, it doesn't always part of the problem, right? You know, plenty of people who don't worship them. They don't worship them in ways they ought to. 
plenty of people who will look at a sunset from a mountain and go, that's interesting. You know what's happening right now is actually the atmosphere has a certain density of certain things and it's filtering the light in such a way. And they're not thanking God or praising God for it. They're sort of trying to deconstruct it. Well, they ought to worship God, but they don't. So how does that all work? Everybody breathes in and out all day long with breath that they borrowed from God's lungs via our parents. God breathed into the nose of Adam and man became a living soul. And that got passed on. Life was passed on from parents to children. Living. There's a spirit that God puts in all living things. And that's talked about in this song and the next one. And he's, everything's alive. He's given the gift of life from God. And yet how many people actually thank him for the breathing now? Everybody that wakes up in the morning, wakes up by the grace of God, and is given the opportunity to experience life all over again. Many people actually thank him for it. We ought to. Grandkids, hot bread with butter, cups of tea, roaring fireplaces in the winter, and more, right? Mm -hmm. My sins being forgiven. Having a covenant community of the people of God to be with, to bear one another's burdens. The promise of eternal life that starts now, according to John 17, 3. All these things are gifts. And we don't praise Him for the gifts. We praise Him because He is. And what emanates out of Him is generosity and grace. In Greek, the word for grace is the same root that we get gift. Charis. If we say somebody is charismatic, we're saying they're gifted. Right? God has graced them. There are stacks of reasons that Christians ought to be the first and foremost ones praising God constantly. And yet, even Christians forgive. We'll, we'll sometimes remember, you know, like, like some food we're about to eat, Jesus name And we pray real quick because so we're thanking Him for the food. But we don't think about the depth of gratitude we ought to have for him, toward him. We don't we don't recognize it would have, it would require us to probably go slower and to be mindful that I ought to be thinking this way all the time praying about it. God, I'm not a worshiper. Make me a worshiper. We're called in by the scriptures to the engagement of a collective memory. It's something that you have to learn. And God's given us tools on how to remember. Remember when they cross into the promised land and um, the, God has the priests stand stones up on end as markers. God had parted the waters. He'd given them the land. He'd dispersed the people from the land, given them a land that they would basically move into houses in some of these places and just start harvesting stuff they didn't plant. It's God's language. And, he, and when he had this across the Jordan, which is a, a kind of exodus out of exile into a land that's theirs, just like the Exodus story. When they cross and the waters stand up on end, and they cross the Jordan on dry land, and they come in, the priests have to stand up these stones and make stone pillars. And, and some of the people are going to say, well, why are we doing this? And the priests are going to say, because God has said that at some point, maybe your kids, or maybe your kids' kids, they're not going to remember that God moved in power in your midst, but they will say, what's this weird stone thing standing up here? 
and you have to learn to remember to tell them every generation afterwards one time God moved in great power in our midst and we're not to forget it. The testimonies that other people have about God we have to think of those testimonies as part of our story. If God did great things to save my parents out of sin so that I had a Christian home, I need to be telling my kids that God did these great things when my parents were young. I have to pass that on. It's part of the story. We're called into this collective memory that when utilized draws us back to worshiping God in spirit and in truth gladly, purposefully. And what the psalmist says happens in the rhythm is that we know rightly, we remember rightly, and we live rightly. And the way to live rightly is to kind of live in a way that has ongoing, perpetual newness of life. Everybody is susceptible to the second law of thermodynamics. Everybody sort of wears out. Everybody does. Not just in getting old and dying. I had a pastor one time who used to talk about why we, why is the command to be filled with the Spirit an ongoing, all-the-time command? Why can't you just do it once? Mm -hmm. And he would say, because we leak. <laughs> yeah. We're people who actually are told something. And not it's not just fools and James that forget. It's normal people all the time as well who want to do what is right. Remember that God's good every once in a while. And then we turn around get right back into busyness or all the millions of reasons why we're not remembering that God's in control, that I should be living a life for Him. And so these patterns help us learn how do I keep coming back to a kind of newness, a kind of life in the Lord? The disciple who's constantly learning worship lessons will feel like a perpetual child. Not in a negative way. But the Bible says that if as a Christian, there is a way that you should be getting younger while you're getting older. That ought to be happening. We know that the outward man weareth away, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. So there's some kind of man, the person that you are, that becomes newer as your body gets older when you're walking with the Lord. And that's what the psalm is about. Psalm 103 is a place we come to be schooled in God's goodness and to be called back to awe and gratitude at the goodness of God and at the vastness of His reach when issuing forth that goodness. With that, let's begin. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Take a minute to think about where your own limited imagination might find you. Just for a minute. On some alternative plane, if God had not been introduced into your life as a redemptive presence. Just think for a minute. 
you know, this is a hypothetical. We don't know the future. We don't know the alternative dimensions. But where might you be right now? Had God never been introduced to your life as a redemptive presence? Start all the way back with giving you breath. That's what the scriptures teach us. God, Moses and Paul say, God called me from my mother's womb. Had God not allowed you to see everything he's allowed you to see up until now, to be everything he's allowed you to be. If you're a Christian, then you know in some way you're mindful or you've learned how God has saved you from destructive patterns. That's just a blessing. It's called salvation. It's great. Leonard Ravenhill, the revivalist preacher, used to say, what did God save you from? What has God saved you from? And don't say hell. You should be able to creatively think about something in addition to hell that God has saved you from. Like myself, apart from God's sanctifying work. I'm a horrible, prideful person. Apart from God having convicted me and bothering me. In my life, I think about this a lot because I was raised in the church, but I rejected the faith. While I was married, I was adulterous. I trashed the marriage. It was the break of divorce. And God put me under conviction of sin. And I look, I look back at that regularly and think, I was not on a path of being like, hey, I could use some conviction of sin down here. I wasn't asking for it. It was a mercy. And I remember being convicted when I was experiencing it. Like, I'm being convicted of my sin. And my first thought was, God is real. That's that, all the church stuff I learned when I, was, when I was a kid. That's real. It's happening. I'm being convicted of my sin. And then I thought, why doesn't God do this for other people? Why doesn't he do it for the other guys in the living room that were sitting right next to me when I fell under conviction of sin? And I, I, it dawned on me, I, I was convicted that righteous people were praying for me. And I was grateful for it. What this stanza, these first five verses, teaches is that no matter how much destruction any of you have encountered, God's presence in our lives is actually redemptive beyond measure. It's, this is sobering, but you have to know this, that God in His sovereignty will not require you to forgive someone else in your life more than he has had to forgive in you. Watch him. Stop with that. God is not going to require you to forgive someone else in your life more than he has had to forgive in you. Amen. Amen. That's staggering. And if you're like me, the inclination is to go, well, he doesn't know what I've been through then. <laughs> And he does. That's part of the part of the revelation of who God is. And that that becomes humbling. I'm I'm saying that as somebody who has walked with people through great horror and has interacted with people whose entire child's childhood has, has been stolen from them at the hands of wicked torturers. I don't say it lightly. I think of Joseph. Joseph had his childhood taken from him by his family. 
thrown in a hole in the ground, hit on the head, thrown in a hole in the ground, only to be pulled out of the hole to be thrown into slavery. False rape charges brought up against him. This starts in his teenage years. False rape charges trumped up against him, thrown in another hole in the ground, because his story is the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Most High. Joseph's story. There's a brother who did no wrong, despised by his brothers, for walking blamelessly in their midst. It's Jesus. What do they do to him? They, they try to give him an injury that won't be as fatal as they hope it is. He's thrown in the hole in the ground. He's brought out of the hole in the ground, only to rise to the right hand of the Holy Most High, Pharaoh's right hand. His entire childhood is taken from him as far as his teenage years, what we call college years, young adulthood. He's not married. He doesn't have a family when everybody else's age is raising a family. He's in jail for, for a crime he did not commit. And by the time he encounters his brothers, and they say, we've done great evil to you, he said, God was in the middle of the great evil against me that you meant for evil. And God was in the middle of it, working it for good. What you really did mean for evil, and it really was evil, God meant for good. No matter how much destruction any of us encountered, God's redemptive presence surpasses it. Not simply because it could have always it could always be worse, that's not what I mean, but because he even promises to make life, here's the renewal factor, he makes life even out of the debris of our sin and death. That's the redemptive mechanism. The best you can do is sin and death. As far as rebellion against God. And God will go and watch what I'll do with even that. And Paul knows that somebody's going to go, wow, man, that's really bad. And the worst sinner you are, the worst sinner you could possibly be, when the grace of God goes further than your sin went, deeper than the stain, the old, the old hymn says, when, when the grace of God goes deeper than your sin could run, it will make God's grace look even greater. And Paul goes, I know what you're thinking. Then we should all be as bad as possible because God will look better and better and better and better. And he said, well, what happens is, God forbid that you do that. Because when you know the grace of God extended towards you, you begin to hate your sin. You don't want sin. You want to turn from it. He works the story of our lives backwards in them. This is really important. And to the prophet, he says, and the crops that the locusts have eaten will be restored unto you. Not, oh, you'll get another, you'll get another field and you can plant a vineyard again. The things that have been destroyed can be given back. This is this is really important. This is the parable of the workers. Parable, I'll touch on this in a minute. The parable of the workers is that some people end up with the same amount of generosity from God as people who have been sowing and working for a long time. And they kind of just show up for the last five minutes. Your soul is called upon to worship God in these verses and to speak of the goodness of God out loud. All that is within me. Everything that's in me 
That's a phrase that's connected to a word for guts and organs. Guts and organs. And it's in the sacrificial system. All that is talked about in Leviticus 4. David would be very familiar with this. Uh, you're told in a few different places that when sacrifice is offered, you offer actually even the fat that was around the kidneys and the liver. There's a certain kind of fat that was there. God wanted that too. What this tells us is that God desires to be offered all of the inside stuff that no one sees. In a sacrifice, you cut an animal down in the middle. And then you splay it open. You see this with Abraham. You see it in the entire sacrificial system. You splay the animal open. And then you pull out all the inside stuff. And you do different things with different parts. That's the, that's the imagery of sacrifice. And what happens in that imagery of sacrifice is that we're being shown. You don't normally see the stuff that's on the inside. In sacrifice, it's brought out. So that carry that through on why all the apostles would speak so plainly and purposely all the time about you being living sacrifices. You keep living and you keep offering up. You keep living and what Jesus says is whoever wants to follow me must first take up his cross, die to himself daily, and follow me. You keep living in this process of repeat dying. Think about what confession is. Think about what confession of sin is. If I say, God, forgive me for lust, I'm not saying forgive me for adultery. I'm saying forgive me for lust. That's something on the inside. That's a hidden thing. Confession pulls the fat around the kidneys and sets it out on the altar in the clear light of day. This is how we actually function as living sacrifices is by using confession now. Bringing the inside stuff out and setting it out there. Confess your sins to one another. That, it'll go well with you. That God's grace might abound. And it knits the body together. There's all kinds of benefits from doing what God says. We call it life. The body is alive that does what God says. And then he looks at it and we know that God judges not just the outward stuff, but the inward stuff. And like in every other kind of sacrifice, he looks at it in order to see whether we think he's worth offering the best or not. For a long time I struggled with trying to control my speech because I wanted to say really bad stuff if I was angry. I wanted to tear somebody down if I felt like they were challenging. And so then I thought, the Christian thing here, the sanctifying process, is i got to shut my mouth. And then what God convicted me of was, I wasn't being Christian, I was just being sovereign. I was just being polite. I didn't say what I really thought. God actually wants the inward stuff pure as well. So then I had to go through, not just keep your pie hole clamped, but I actually had to then go through the process of being like, God, I have a filthy heart. The stuff inside me is filthy. And I had to confess that and repent of it. And not just repent when I blurted something out, but repent of what the cup was full of. Full of. Like John Edwards used to say, you, you knock into the cup 
and its contents come out. That's what trial does to us. Trial is sort of knocking the cup, and everybody gets to see what's inside. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Mm-hmm. You confessionally interact with God about your hidden desires? Are you removing the inner covetousness, the inner lust? Or are you content to only do the visible stuff? What we call keeping up appearances. That's a those those are fake buildings. Those are Hollywood sets that only look like buildings on the outside. We want to be whole creatures given entirely over to the Lord. When we follow the Lord in this way, offering praise to Him in this way, the inward parts are, get this, this is what confession and repentance does. They're renewed. So the inward man, the stuff around our soul, our personality, our intellect, our emotions, the stuff around that can be removed, all the rot can be removed through confession and repentance of inward things. And now guess what happens? The sacrifice is being purified. And so what happens is the person who practices that is becoming someone whose insides are like what they were when they were younger, when they were newer, when they were healthy. They're being renewed. This is the image of the molting eagle shedding all of his old, stained, damaged, heavy feathers so he can fly in the newness of life. St. Augustine says that the, the ornithologists of his day had witnessed eagles, old eagles, whose beaks would continue to grow in a hooked manner over their mouths. He's, they witnessed eagles breaking their beaks off in order for a new beak to continue to grow so that they could eat, and so that the beak wouldn't stop, uh, stop them from being able to eat. Colossians 3, verse 9, Lie not to one another, seeing you've put off the old man with all his deeds, that's the heavy feathers, all the stuff that weighs you down, the stuff that makes you drag, and this includes, the, for, from the psalmist, all your inner stuff as well. Put off the old man, don't lie to each other, seeing you've put off all the old man with his deeds, and you've put on the new man. There it is, the newness. The new man, which is renewed, that's constantly being made new, which is renewed. How? If there's a, if there's a way to be constantly made new, how is it? In the knowledge after the image of him that created him, who created the new man. Jesus is the Adam, the final Adam, and we're talked about by the apostles as being new human line in a new Adam. If you're in Christ, you're in a new Adam. Put off the old Adam and all the stuff you inherited from your parents, your old parents. Now you walk in a new way of, in your body, you walk in a new way of living according to the one that made this new man. That's a creation story all over again. That's the story of our new creation in Christ by the Spirit of God, by the will of the Father, by the work of the Son. If kids learn to practice confession and repentance well, anybody, but kids especially, what you're learning is that you will actually get younger as you get older in the right ways. You'll get younger as you get older. 
Your body gets older. But when you become more alive, the longer you live, the longer you do it, the newer you are. Sanctification is part of worship and leads to renewal. That's not the reason to worship. God's existence incites worship. His gifts remind us that he should be worshipped. Notice the pattern, though. Whatever he touches turns to life. Wherever his light shines, it becomes light. Ephesians 5.13 Whatever the light shines on, doesn't say in this passage, in Ephesians 5, it doesn't say it exposes it. It actually says becomes light. That's the redemptive power. That's what happens to my sin. Guess what happens to my sin? I cheated on my wife when I was not walking with the Lord. I lied. I was high all day, every day. I was, I was uh, a gossip. I was self-serving. And when the light touches all that stuff, all of that stuff now becomes property of God and he uses it in order to grow good things in his garden. We call it testimony. That's what happens. You've, I, when I was a kid, I remember this. You've probably heard people share their testimonies. You've probably seen marriages saved. You've probably seen people who are like, I was on a road to destruction. I'm walking with the Lord now. And you're like, that's so cool. That's neat, right? Because even the sin now is the property of God, and God gets to do whatever he wants with it, and what God does is life stuff. That's what he does. He does renewal stuff. He does life stuff. Worshippers get to see death then, physical death, as a door to greater life. That's what Paul says. That's what the apostles say. That's what the martyrs in the early church said. Death does not win for the worshiper. In its final bite, it actually loses its prize from out of its mouth. We hear all this language from the apostles about a crown crown of glory. Here the crown that is for the worshiper is described as God's loving kindness and God's mercy. And it's the same crown. It's the crown of life elsewhere. It's a glorious crown. It's a reward crown elsewhere. But here we're showing something else about it. What is it that makes the crown is a glorifying of a person. That's why we, it's bright. It's usually precious metal and it makes someone's head shine. Oil does this as well. And so if oil is kind of a liquid gold in the Bible. You use it to anoint things, to glorify things, to make things new, to heal things. It captures light in a unique way. Here we're told that the crown, the beauty of the worshiper, the thing that is the glory of its head, is that God has been merciful and kind to him or to her. That's the glory. Sky, uh, old Lutheran theologian Ernst Pengstenberg said about this song, he said, old age in other cases is always the forerunner of death is here continually the forerunner of youth. Counterintuitive. Old age and everywhere else is considered you're getting close to death. But for the worshiper, the person who's learned worship in God, old age means you must be wicked young. 
That person is a fountain of ways of newness of life and newness of being. That person is a place people can grow, can go and learn how it is to live and to get rid of death stuff and to walk in newness of life stuff. They become a fountain of life. That's a, that's a person bubbling over with newness if they've worshipped a long time. Here it is continually a forerunner of youth. The greater the failure of strength, so much the nearer is the complete renewal of strength. Isn't that amazing? We call it, in, in therapy culture, in, in rehab culture, they call it rock bottom. When somebody's burned every bridge, when somebody has wrecked every relationship, when somebody has no more money, nothing else to sell, no one will let them borrow anything, when they have absolutely nothing, guess what that person is? They're closer to the kingdom than they've ever been. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. in, in order to come in, your qualification for coming into the kingdom is that you're disqualified. That's it. Mm -hmm. Verse 6. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. This passage emphasizes God's mercy towards Sinners. It's all about the removal of iniquity. Transgressions. This was one of the primary reasons that we should worship God in the first stanza. Why? Because He forgives all our sins. What a reminder that the God who is there is good. This is a God who forgives sins. In His holiness, if this was any other religion, His holiness would keep you away and as much as you would try to crawl up those stairs on your knees, you'd never reach him. And because you wouldn't reach him, he said, I'll take on the manner of sinful flesh. Because I won't be ashamed to call them brethren in order to present them to the Father as family. When speaking of the righteousness and the justice for the oppressed in verse 6, the word translated in King James as executed means accomplishes it's that God does it it's that somebody had to do this thing I've got a sin problem somebody's going to do something about it and God has accomplished the thing that needed to be done that's the, that's the proclamation that's the base of worship and then notice what follows we're brought back to Moses and told that God taught those people way back then how to walk with him why go back to Moses why wouldn't David just go like, well, you know, Jesse, my father, he taught my dad how to walk with God. Or even his granddad. Or his mom. Or somebody else in his day, right? I mean, Samuel, the prophet, anointed him. Why doesn't he go, you know, Samuel, we all know him. I think it's for a couple reasons. Firstly, you need to see that the history of Israel even back to the early pages of it, are supposed to be pages in your photo album. You're supposed to think of this as your history. 
This is what you are grafted into. All of the stuff the apostles say, all the blessings of being in the uh, stock of Israel are yours now. And secondly, you need to see that God's always doing a new thing and that's often some, some of the same things he's always done over and over. He'll do it for a new group of people. There's a newness to it and sometimes there's a, there's a repeat episode kind of nature to it. God's always blessed his people. God always has his people learning from scripture that we have a collective memory. It's not just the Old Testament that does this. Where do the, what do the apostles preach everywhere they go? They preach the Old Testament. So even in the New Testament, we're actually being called back to the very beginning. Every marriage, I quote Jesus, who's quoting Moses, about what God did in the beginning when he made one man and one woman. And he, and he married them. Right? There's the father there who gives the woman away to the husband. There's the understanding that this is actually covenantal, this is sacramental. And all of the structure of the marriage motif exists back there. Our faith is not merely buttressed and edified by our own autobiography. You're not supposed to think about your Christianity as me and Jesus got our own thing. Not if it's with Jesus, you don't. Your thing is the people of God's thing, and it always has been. Your sex life is everybody else's business in the family of God. Your sin issue is everybody else's business in the family of God. Your blessings are everybody else's blessings. You rejoice with people who rejoice. You learn to cry with people who are crying. At our church right now, a woman, um, a woman just lost her husband. They're in their 90s. They came to the church a couple of years ago. Husband was not a Christian up until uh, three months before he died. He baptized him in his bed, or cancer ate away most of his face. He tried to come to the church to tell people who's trusting in Jesus. And the pain was too bad, so he couldn't come. And now she's lost this 90-something years. She lived with a man who was crass, vulgar, self-centered, didn't listen to her. 90-something years. Two children committed suicide. They had everyone in the family, including them, have all been institutionalized at different times. And here she is at the very end. And her husband trusts in Jesus and is baptized right at the end of his life. She has to process that. And what happens is everybody else in the church is supposed to not forget that she's going through this. So we remind everyone. Make comments. It's not just the lady who lost her husband. She has to process the fact that her husband was a wicked man basically for a hundred years. And she lived with that. And then he gets saved right at the end because she's prayed for him for a hundred years. All of this is a fact. And what in the people in our church ought to be recognizing there's a heaviness, there's a sobriety here to what Ola is going through. The same thing when the baby's born. Same thing when the baby dies. And you're not gonna you're probably gonna have one little group of people that you'll walk with as the people of God for most of your life. You may not stay at this church forever, but you'll probably have one group of people. And even if you go to a big church somewhere, you'll have a group within that that becomes your people. 
you need to learn for the course of your whole life to bear their burdens with them. Because you'll forget. You'll hear somebody say it in a prayer time and go, Oh, God helps on so the hurt me. God helps on so baby, you know, baby died. And you're like, Oh, that's sad. And then you go home and you watch Netflix. And then you go home, you get a vacuum, you get to get up, you get to go to work, and you come back. God, I got to pick up on the kids. And boom, 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 boom. That's normal. We have to break it. You have to break that. You have to be in each other's lives. You have to be listening. You have to be caring. You have to change repentance. You have to change not just the way you think, metanoia. You also have to change the way you feel, metamelomai. The two sons that Jesus tells this story, two sons playing video games in front of the TV, and the dad comes in and says, hey, one of you boys go mow the lawn. And one dad goes, Screw you, Dad. Get out of the way. I can't see the TV. I'm not doing it. Get out of my way. The other dad goes, I will, Dad. I will. I'll go mow the lawn, Dad. And the one who said, Screw you, Dad. Get out of the way. I'm not doing it. Begins to feel differently. He gets up and he goes and mows the lawn. The word of what happened to that boy is metamelomai. He didn't have a change of mind. He had a change of passion. Have change of emotions. And just like Paul says, take every thought captive and make your thought life obey what is true, that's where you get a conscience, conscience with knowledge. If you don't have the knowledge of what God says in his word, your conscience will be weak. And you'll be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You listen to what God says, and your conscience becomes stronger. You know which end is up, you know which way is north, you know what to do, and then you can walk. You can move. And it's the same thing with your emotions. Somebody who's married and says, I fell in love with somebody else at work. Too bad. Put that love to death. You don't have any right to give your heart and your emotions to somebody else. You kill those emotions. Somebody who doesn't live by the word of God is going to go, but my emotions, but my emotions are my identity. Whatever I think is some sort of brilliant thought. We have to put thoughts to death. You have to put emotions to death all day long. And it's the same way when you're offended, when you're hurt, and you want to hate somebody, and you want to cut them off, and they're in the body of Christ. You've got to actually realize, that's it. I, I know what God says, and that emotion needs to die, because I've actually got to live in a kind of reconciliation and forgiveness. That's all over the place. Cast your vision back to Israel. Remember that the people have always been pretty much the same. That's too bad. Remember, God's pretty much always been the same. That's really good. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. All these things happened, speaking of the story of Israel, to them for examples. And they are written down for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. God's mercy is plenteous. God is slow to anger. He's not a God who's always punishing. He doesn't hold a grudge. He won't give you what you deserve. Praise God. God is a God who doesn't pay you what you earned at the end of every day. Verse 11. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those that fear him. And here the school of worship reemerges. To fear God, to reverence God, gives one access to all this vastness of mercy. The reason fear and reverence are often used interchangeably is because of the demand for special attention that the presence of the feared one elicits. 
when people act, if, they're, if somebody is scared of someone, they act different. Their behavior changes, their posture, what they're thinking about changes. That's why God uses it, why he uses this concept of fearing God all the time. If I'm in the mall, and some guy is acting erratic, and he's crazy, and it looks like he's carrying some sort of weapon, and all my kids are running around not noticing it, guess what I do? Everything about what I'm doing changes because I'm scared. Everything changes. My body changes, what I'm doing, all my attention is given over to one thing because I'm scared. And the source of my fear is over here. And there's a kind of recognition that it's like, you need to know who God is. You need to know what God has said about iniquity and transgression and sin so that you have a right kind of fear. You should be afraid of going to hell. You should be afraid of having God judge you. You should be afraid of that for your neighbors. You should recognize that is a horrible thing. Imagine if somebody actually died and their sins were still in union with them and there was no more chance to have the detangling take place. Imagine that. It's horrible. Now, that's not you. Praise God. That's still God. Fear Him. So we have reverence, worship, and a right kind of fear. It's the same thing at work. It's just in a lesser way. I watch these videos sometimes on YouTube. And you see these um, these guys who fall asleep at work. And somebody makes a loud noise right next to them. They got caught sleeping. Somebody goes, hey, the boss is here. And he goes, they're quick, scramble. Even if you don't fall asleep at work, right? There's a kind of sense in which if your supervisor comes into the room, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even just your posture changes. If the Queen of England was visiting right now and came here, we'd actually have people who came to this house first to teach everybody how you were to conduct yourself in the presence of the Queen, and then they'd bring the Queen. And it would look to everybody watching it on TV like, oh, look at that, the, look, the Queen visited this household. But you'd be taught how to use your body to conform to what ought to happen with bodily confirmation in the presence of someone who deserves reverence. It's all over our world. All over everywhere. It's mercy and his ongoing kindness is for those who fear him. Verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it's gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, those that remember his commandments to do them. God pities those who fear him, he has mercy and compassion on people who fear him. That's the kind of God he is. He's not the drunk monster guy who's really big at the bar, who likes the fact that people are afraid of him and sort of gets a high from him. God is more powerful than anyone. And when he sees that people fear him, his mercy moves towards them. People are afraid of God. And God says, it's okay. It's going to be okay. That's when people respond as they ought to in fear to the Lord. God responds in mercy and compassion to them. He doesn't immorally use reverence. He doesn't dominate others in his position of power or shame them. Jesus says to the disciples, that's a kind of 
leader. That's a kind of leadership. That's a kind of use of power that is not allowed in the kingdom of God. Luke 22, 25. Remember Christ's employment of Isaiah's vision? Our God is a, is a king who sees a broken limb on an apple tree and he rubs ointment on the, on the tear and then he binds it up and wraps it and then he protects it for the necessary time it takes in order for the healing of the tree to take place. Matthew 12, Isaiah 42. God remembers we're made of dirt, we're made of dust because he made us. In verses 17 and 18, the psalmist is actually quoting from Exodus for the sake of time. I won't read it, but it's Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Second commandment's being explained, right? I shall not make any graven image to bow down and to worship them. Why? Because God is this kind of God. He's a jealous God. And there he shows mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That's the kind of God he is. Therefore, don't fall into idolatry. Because God is a God who's merciful. He's holy. We should be feared. But remember, if God visits sin to the third and fourth generation, he visits forgiveness to thousands of generations. Amen. What that tells you is his redemption is far greater than even his wrath. Like, the fact that sinners are going to be forgiven and will only be, popu heaven will only be populated with losers, with people who could have never made it. That's the only people who will be in heaven. It's amazing. When worshipers walk with God and are catechized into this way of life, they find something that gives hope that they want to pass on to their children, and good news, the Bible commands that they do pass on to their children. From, from Deuteronomy 5 and 6 to Ephesians 5 and 6, the language is, you children in the Lord, obey the Lord. This is the first commandment that comes with the promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the earth, Paul says. Deuteronomy says the land the Lord your God has given you because Israel's changed. Israel's gone global by the time the new covenant comes in. And so his language is quoting, quoting Deuteronomy in Ephesians 5 and 6 but then he actually says because God's given the world to you. Not just the little strip in the Middle East. Amen. reminded that the paths have been laid out from old. They were taught to Moses. Streetlights were installed on these paths during the time of Christ, and those streetlights are still burning. And lastly, we see the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear Him and keep His commandment, keep covenant with Him and obey His commandments. What does that mean? It means that just like with God, whose covenantal faithfulness is translated loving kindness, that word in the King James, when you see loving kindness, that word is, he's faithful to the covenant. So the word is, it's translated love and kindness. It means God will actually keep covenant with his people. Our concept of love should never be detached from obedience. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet you do not do what I say? Why do you say you love me when you do not keep my commandments? Mm -hmm. We shouldn't detach love from obedience. You should recognize that what love looks like in covenant is honoring the covenant, covenantal faithfulness, loving kindness. If you love your wife, the old language of the marriage vows says you will plight her your troth. 
I plight thee my troth, is the phrase. If you love her, you say that. That's not just speech, but it's bodily fidelity. It means, I pledge you in truth all of me, my body and my life. I pledge you in truth my life. The greater covenant is no different. Ephesians 5 tells us marriage is a mini-theater of what God does with his bride. The way of worship is holiness, the way of worship is truth in the inward parts. That's what the Psalms have been teaching us back in 51, Psalm 51, 6. Behold, God, thou desirest truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom where? In the secret part. Final section. Verse 19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens. His kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening to the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all his places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The reason for emphasizing, as in verse 19, that the Lord has prepared and established his throne in heaven is that it's not to be confused with thrones that are established from the earth. You must not make any mistake about it. The direction of that throne that's established in heaven is earthward. He told us to pray this. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Its origin is heavenly. Just as he said in front of Pilate, right? My kingdom's not from the earth. Oh, you're a king? Thou hast said it. Yes, I am a king. Where's your reign? And Pilate, you can imagine, is un unfolding a map. Show me where it is. And he says, my kingdom's not of earth. You don't have a map for it. But it is claiming the whole earth. Make no mistake. It will move earthward. That's why he says all authority in heaven and on earth Amen. has been given to me. Therefore, disciple every nation in the world. Because the authority is his. Everything that exists we see on earth, our suffering, our hidden desires, everything has a place in the choir. Sin done against us, sin we're ashamed of ever having done, the work of our hands, the place at our table, your back porch, everything you have can be used and, and is given place in the kingdom of God. And we're to be whole creatures living sacrificial lives of living a kind of death that only continues to renew us. There's an ancient hymn in the church called the Benedicite Omnia Opera. Wicked old, and um, tradition has it that it's part of it, at least, is the song sung by Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. And the ideas that are being captured in Psalm 103 are captured in this hymn. Just an old hymn, it's not scripture, but you can see that it's rooted in a lot of what scripture teaches us. I'll just read you a few lines from it. This is what you want to be thinking Everything that has breath. Praise the Lord. Everything that's inside me, praise God. All of the things, the renewing of my strength, the shedding of the old, 
praises the Lord. The shedding of old things praises the Lord. The gaining of new things praises the Lord. What that looks like in real time is you apologizing to someone when you do something wrong. What that looks like in real time is you confessing your sin. That's shedding old feathers. And you getting new ones is the next time you have a chance. You've gone. You pulled into the driveway. You always fight with your mom. You pull in the driveway and you say, here, here we are, Lord. We've been praying about this. Help me today to show respect and honor to a woman who's my mom, even though I don't want to honor her. I find her dishonorable. And then you can be like, go in. And you're, and you're going to see. This is spiritual battleground. Do I do it? Do I honor my mother the way I'm told to? And if you come out and get back in the car and you go, I did it. You poked out new feathers. That's what you did. Amen. Everything. Everything to the glory of God. Listen to the lines here from the Benedictine. All ye works of the Lord, bless you the Lord. Praise Him. And magnify Him forever. All ye angels of the Lord, bless you the Lord. Praise Him. Magnify Him forever. All ye frost and cold. Bless you, the Lord. Praise Him. Magnify Him forever. All ye ice and snow, bless you, the Lord. Praise Him and magnify Him forever. O ye whales and all that move in the waters, bless you, the Lord. Praise Him and magnify Him forever. O Ananias, Azariah, and Mishael, bless you, the Lord. Praise Him and magnify Him forever. And so the Psalms moved us on the path of the eagle from earth to heaven. Our lives are short, much smaller than we like to think them to be. Our lives are like the path of the eagle in the air, and they leave no trace that we've passed this way. It takes very, very little time before everything we are and everything we did and everything we cared about is forgotten. How many people have sat on this patch of grass in the last hundred years, either in a building or not on it? We don't know any of them. Who was the last person to cry in this house before the Bertrams moved there? What were they crying about? No idea. It's all just gone. Eagle doesn't leave footprints in the air. That's your life. But our God our king, the one we have union with, is sovereign. He's sovereign over all kingdoms. He's sovereign over all rulers and all authorities and everything on the earth. And if there was ever anyone worthy of praise and honor, it's our God. His messengers, both in heaven and on earth, are those who speak what God speaks and who do what God says to do. He was and is and is to come. His ways are consistent. His testimony is in every generation before us, in ours, and after us. Christ is the embodiment of that way. All who approach learn the wideness of God's mercy. He's not only able, but He desires to forgive every iniquity. He's not only able, but is willing and desirous to be faithful to you and to your children. Hear His word, trust in Christ, confess your sin, turn from it, Learn the way. Obey God. It's the pattern of life and life more abundantly. Life pressed down. Life overflowing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.